Hi, this is Leo Cozonda, and I welcome you to my show, Within Conversation, where I get to ask just about anything to all kinds of inspiring characters. We talk about creativity, inspiration, stress, wellness, and to be honest, the list continues. My guest and I spend about an hour or so together and we get to dive into the inner workings of life, including anything to do with the tech world and esoteric realm. So if you want life lessons, routines, stories, inspiration, connection, ideas, habits, ways to deal with discomfort, and ways to find comfort, then this show is for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I must tell you before we go any further that this episode is fortunately powered by turmeric. Actually, let me rephrase that. It's powered by a brand that I would keep to myself if I were selfish, but since I'm not, I'll tell you what it is. It's called Wunder Workshop. It's a pioneering turmeric brand based in London. Now, of course, the turmeric isn't grown in London, so they work with organic community forest gardens in Sri Lanka. Zoe said it's organic, and it is, but she actually explained the whole process, and it's pretty clear that it's more like biodynamic or wild, which is just on another level. Sorry, organic. So they actually make my first morning drink. Of course, they don't come to my house. I make it myself, and I use the shroom powder, which is amazing. They also keep me fueled on those long, long tech days of mine where I'm just staring at a screen for way too long. But that's another story. They keep me on track with their CBD turmeric and olive oil product. You know, I take a pipette and leave maybe three to eight drops, depending on how I'm feeling, under my tongue, and it feels amazing. They also make adaptogen blends, which are brilliant for women's and men's health. In fact, I'm going to take a sip right now. So let's put it this way. Zoe and Tom are turmeric champions, but they're also very generous. And right now, they are giving you, my listeners, a 20% discount on all their turmeric products directly from their website. So there's no fuss. So head over to wonderworkshop.com and enter the code LEOCO to claim your L-E-O-C-O to claim your 20% discount on any product. The address is wunderworkshop in one word dot com. W U N D E R W O R K S 
H-O-P.com. Once again, enter the code LEOCO, L-E-O-C-O, on wunderworkshopinoneword.com when you check out. Enjoy. Today, I want you to meet Seth Tabatsnik. Seth is the co-founder of 42 Acres, a wellness retreat in Somerset, England, and also a workshop and co-working space in London. In 2009, Seth founded One Way Theatre, which is the UK's first solar-powered mobile outdoor cinema. He's also involved with Doc House, which is part of Curzon Cinemas. Seth acts as non-executive director of Belltown Power, Web Partners, Firefly Solar Generators, Central Film School, Milking the Clouds Charitable Organization, and holds an advisory role with the Bertha Foundation. He is the founding director of Bertie Investments, an impact investment company focused on the UK's low-carbon sector. He now lives in Somerset, working remotely, evolving his home into a self-sufficient farm and nature reserve. So without further ado, please enjoy this green conversation with Seth Tabatsnik. So Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> yes, it's good. And it looks like the noise has come down. We're in London, which is building work 24-7, <laughs> more or less. Yeah. Except when we do the podcast. <laughs> the universe is on our side. I hope so. Oh. <laughs> Just <laughs> testing. <laughs> Could you walk us through how 42 Acres came about? And yeah, so... 42 Acres started about three years ago, but the seed was planted before that. Um, About seven or eight years ago, I started investing in environmental businesses, in in startups, uh, mostly in renewable energy and energy efficiency, um, which was quite a shift from before that, where I was running a solar-powered mobile cinema Uh, screening films to communities around the south coast of England. Um, And in the investments, uh, um, yeah, what I really believed in was people and uh, that the most powerful organizations and the most powerful change in the world starts with people. And it starts from people living in line with their purpose. And at the same time, Lara, my sister, had set up a family foundation called the Bertha Foundation, Um, again, investing in people, in activists, in change makers, um, focused in the human rights world. Um, And the theory of change for the Bertha Foundation was that to change the world, you need an activist, a storyteller and a lawyer. And that was what the foundation funded. Uh, she was at the same time going on retreats, uh, working on her own stuff as a human being, 
and was starting to recognize that there are a lot of amazing activists in the world really trying to make it a better place, uh, but dealing with a lot of internal conflict, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of hate, and we're trying to change the outside world, believing that the outside would change themselves inside, uh, which isn't necessarily true. And so she wanted to create a space where people look at their own stuff, where people, where, where her theory of change was that to change the world, you have to start with yourself, that change starts from inside. Uh, and I wanted, I, I was investing in environmental businesses, living in London, staring at a computer screen all day in Oxford Circus, uh, and realized I had no connection with nature whatsoever. So although I believed I was in service to the world, uh, in service to nature, um, uh, I had no connection. And so I wanted to live on land. I wanted to live sustainably. Uh, I wanted a direct connection. Um, so I moved out to Somerset, uh, found a place serendipitously, uh, as one does. <laughs> and, um, and it felt like that would be the home of 42 acres and a retreat space. It didn't have the name 42 acres then. It was actually 130 acres. Um, and a combination of the planners and my ex-girlfriend uh, got in the way of that happening. Uh, and about two weeks after we were told, you know, you can't have this as a retreat center. The um, council don't like it. Uh, they don't really understand what a retreat center is or what you're really trying to do. It's confusing. Uh, the next door neighbors uh, decided they wanted to sell their place, which was 42 acres. Uh, and we decided, well, it was decided for us that that, that was going to be the home of, of 42 acres as a retreat space, uh, with the focus be, being on uh, uh, people changing the world by starting with themselves. Um, you mentioned the, the lawyer, the activist, and the storyteller. Who would be the storyteller? Who's the activist? Um, well, so in the storytelling, most of what the foundation supports is documentary uh, filmmakers um, uh, telling the alternative story to the mainstream because documentary gives you an hour, an hour and a half to really captivate an audience. Uh, and and tell an alternative to what the news tells us every single day to really dive deep into an issue. Um, was the second question that the lawyer or the activist? Yes, I was actually thinking between you and Lara. <laughs> ah, um, I don't think either of us are really storytellers. I, I'd say I kind of live my story through living my life uh, rather than telling stories vocally. Uh, I try to... Uh, I tend to sit behind the scene and uh, which mirrors the spaces we've created um, in Somerset and in Shoreditch where we feel like our role is to hold space and to create an intentional space for um, the storytellers, as it were, the facilitators, practitioners um, to come in with, with an audience and, and work with them directly. Yeah. Any funny anecdotes, any, any moments you'd like to, to share with us that may inspire us or make us laugh? Well, when I first moved to, uh, when I first moved to my farm, um, 
I wasn't particularly popular being the London person moving into a very rural community. Um, and one of the first things I did was put in a planning application to build a solar farm, uh, which made me incredibly unpopular. Uh, I, I remember getting a call at about two in the morning from one of the neighbors after someone had set some fireworks off next door saying, go back to the city where you belong. Uh, you don't belong here. This is the countryside. You've woken the horses up. You've woken up the dogs. Just go back to the city. Uh, I woke up at eight in the morning and then had an email in my inbox from the same lady, which said, I've discovered you're not the guilty party, that it was in fact somebody who was renting the accommodation next door. No apology. Uh, no, you know, <laughs> this wasn't your fault. Uh, I just wasn't appreciated. I wasn't liked. Um, and I feel like that's where I sit in the world as an outsider uh, and where a lot of people who are trying to be in service uh, of people and the planet still sit at this moment in time. We, we are outsiders and we're a niche. And um, I know that's not a funny anecdote, but, but that's something that really comes up for me is that I just, throughout my life, I see mirrors in everything, uh, in, in every process I go through, in every relation that... Um, or every situation that I come into. Do you find that being in service can sometimes attract aggression or strong reactions from your environment, from other people who both know or don't know you? I think if you don't trust the rules fully, and you believe there's something fundamentally flawed in the system and you're trying to change it, not living fully by the rules of society, by the rules of law, um, by the rules of human relationships uh, and expectation, especially in a country like the UK where um, we're quite modest in how we relate to other people and we don't often say what we think. Um, it can be quite scary for people uh, to, um, well, I, I know, yeah, where, where, where I am, it, it, it's, yeah, <laughs> um, it's scary for people to, um, to be challenged in all of that. And people really don't like change. And one of the big things that I've noticed locally is uh, things have been a certain way for a very long period of time. And I represent change to a lot of people, um, not necessarily globally representing change, but locally I represent change. Uh, and again, I would just say I'm uh, a reflection of what is happening in the world, that there is huge change happening, there's huge change coming, and that puts a lot of fear in people. And there's still a belief that um, by resisting that change, we can control it. Um, which just isn't the truth. Uh, we, the only thing we can control in some ways or practice in order to have more control over is the way we respond to what's going on in the world. Um, yeah. So what was going on in, in your head when you received the phone call? I'm going to try and contextualize this because we have this tendency to say, well, people who live in big cities like London or New York are very stressed, very impatient. Do you think it may sometimes be the opposite, that actually people 
in the city can be very open-minded and very able and, and willing to change and that perhaps people who live in the countryside are not. Generally, I think people become a product of their environment. Um, and I look at animals as an example of that, where you walk around the city and you see pigeons walking right up next to you. There is no fear. They're just used to being crammed into a certain environment. Uh, when you go to the countryside and you see a pigeon 30 meters away, it flies off. Um, there's a sense of space in the countryside that we get used to and we don't like our space to be infringed or challenged whereas in the city people are used to having less space they can stand on a tube with their head under the armpit of another person and that's normal um, I'm just going to interrupt here because I think maybe I didn't ask the right question I think I would imagine that if you have the luxury of having space I thought maybe we could assume that we can tolerate more, that we can be more patient, but it, I'm realizing that may not be the case. So what's your thought on this? Yeah, I'd say it's to do with boundaries, that people have different expectations of where a safe boundary lies. And in the countryside, people have a sense of safety because they have more space. Uh, because the boundary is far further away from, you know, where they sleep. Uh, and it can create this illusion of safety, which doesn't exist because um, a property development could go up right next door to where you live and block your entire view and you have very little say over it. But because you've been used to things for a certain way, you create the illusion within your mind that that's not the case. Whereas now we're sitting in central London, we look everywhere around us and there are buildings going up left right and center the expectation in your mind is that you have less control uh, there's less of a sense of safety as to what's going to happen next door to your house um, you get used to being less in control so have your boundaries changed now that you live and have been living in the countryside yeah when i come into london i find it a lot more challenging um uh I, I genuinely find my energy levels have dropped uh, two or three days into being in a city and they get restored when I go back out to the countryside. Um, and I can enjoy being in the city and I can pick up the buzz, uh, but I've become a lot more sensitive uh, to, to being in such an intense environment and I do feel like um, people are less sensitive when they get used to a certain thing a certain environment and when people come out to visit me and my home or they come to 42 acres uh, from the city there's a deep deep sleep that happens on the first night uh, people always say wow, I've never slept so long <laughs> I've never slept so deeply I just feel so restored and you know that is why people get more sick in the city why um, there's uh, more stress within the city environment uh, we as humans need space. We need space to grow. We need space to regenerate ourselves um, uh, in the same way as nature does. So in a way you need your summer and your winter. You need to pull and you need to push. Yeah, so, so I would you say it, it's beneficial for you to, to have those few days every once in a while in London then? 
yeah, uh, um, like summer and winter, I would say it's like breathing in and breathing out. Um, mm. And I would say for myself, it's like going to the countryside is my in-breath. Um, and it's where I restore myself. And when I come into the city environment, uh, it's action. It's making things happen. It's doing. Um, and it's a really important part of my own balance and my own cycle and pattern that I've created for myself to, to balance those two things. And I couldn't have one without the other. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't enjoy, uh, um, you can't have a lot of fun and joy and pleasure if you don't know what pain feels like as well. So I'm reading on the 42 Acres website, most outer changes come from within. So I wonder if you could... Uh, you could explain if you think the physical creation of these spaces which is external has had an impact on your inner world or inner self so technically that's the other way around from the quote on the website yeah i think the two are one and the same um you can't change your outer world unless you're looking at your inner world and you need to create the outer world that you're you're trying to put inside. And what I mean by that is um, going into nature, spending time in nature, uh, having creative time for yourself, um, creating the practices for creative time for yourself are all in the outer world, but they affect and train your inner world. Uh, if you imagine your inner world in some ways being uh, a garden, uh, a cultivated garden um, and what you're trying to grow within uh, you need around you on the outside you need the right gardeners around you you need the right tools around you uh, and if you don't have that then the weeds will grow inside um, and that's often what can happen within a city environment where there's a lot of stress a lot going on and you're not giving yourself the time to cultivate your inner garden uh, and the weeds I would relate to as, as really stress hormones within the system, uh, addictions and negative patterns that don't necessarily uh, fulfill your life and, and um, can be quite damaging and, and cause health problems. How is it working with family? What tends to be challenging and what does tend to be pleasant and beneficial? So I work uh, mostly with Lara, my sister, uh, on 42 Acres, and um, I think we both trigger each other a lot, uh, but we also bring the best out of each other, and it feels sometimes like we, we have these two oak trees that sit in front of 42 Acres, and, um, and also within our logo, we've got these two trees, and they're very symbolic, and it feels very much like uh, we support each other and that there's a real bond and a friendship and a team. Uh, and there's a lot of complementary skills between us. Um, we grew up very close and used to argue a lot <laughs> and fight with each other all the time. Um, but in some ways, that's how we grew together. That's how we grew up. Um, and we love working with each other. Uh, and I feel stronger when I have her as a support and I think vice versa. Um, but yeah, it's not always easy and perfect, but that's, that's life. And, and it, um, there's a real trust, which I think you find 
more with family than with anyone else in the world that they give you full permission to trust. I, I also work with my dad quite a lot as well and as did my sister. And um, I think there's there's another challenge in that, which is that he's our dad and he likes to be the boss. And I think I know personally, I find that quite challenging because I like to live my own life and be in charge of my own life and being told what to do. I find very challenging and it triggers all of those emotions inside of me that I'm not in control of my life. So what is it that triggers you the most? I mean, let's assume he tells you to do something which does make sense. You can look back and say, yeah, I really should do that or do, shouldn't do that. Does that still trigger you or does it only trigger you if you don't think it's really justified or correct or insightful. Sometimes it's hard to know when somebody else is right. And I think that's what people call ego. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a sense of self-discovery uh, and wanting to make my own mistakes. And when somebody tells you something and gives you advice, uh, well, particularly when my father tells me something or gives gives me advice, um, you want to listen and at the same time you don't want them to be right. You want to feel like you've come to the conclusion on your own because it's the path that you walk as a human is you want to grow, you want to learn, you want to discover the world for yourself. Um, mm. And it's, it, it, yeah, it's challenging to, to uh, have that taken away in some, in some situations. Uh, sometimes I want to fail uh, and I want to be free to fail. And if if somebody tells me what to do, if my dad tells me what to do, mm. um, I no longer have that permission. When you work in the woods, in the forest, and you're doing your offline work, what is nature, for instance, mirroring you? I think that everything that I see outside myself, um, and I speak for myself, it's the same or different for other people. Um, uh, everything is a reflection of what's going on inside. And one of my favorite Ram Das quotes is that everywhere you look, you see exactly what you're looking for. So hmm. if I have something going on that's a focus of my mind or something energetically that's going on in my world at the time, I'll see that everywhere in nature. And the story I'll tell myself is according to what's going on for me. Um, so I create my own mirror outside based on what's going on inside. Um, if I'm feeling stressed or anxious, I'll, you know, look for why the tree has fallen over and blocked my path and is slowing me down or the mud is getting in the way, mm. uh, because that's the energy I'm embodying. Um, whereas if everything feels in flow, um, you know, that same mud will just feel like playtime. Do you get a lot of playtime? Um, I think within the team, we within the 42 Acres team, we've started to embody a lot of play uh, and recognize that it's not fun to work uh, every day without playtime. Um, we get used to it at school um, and it's what everyone looks forward to in some ways and it's part of balance and it's part of diversity within the day um, and playtime can include laughter 
and making sure that, you know, there's a free and open space for joy is a massive part of, you know, how we operate as a team and the energy we're trying to put into the world. Um, that, you know, spirituality, self-development, self-growth has to be fun. Uh, we're not going to encourage other people to take up a path of, um, of personal development, of growth, uh, of being their highest potential if it's not fun. You know, people want to enjoy their lives, not feel like it's this very serious uh, practice that we have to do. Hmm. Um, and for me, you know, I some of my play is through movement. Sometimes it's through music. Um, sometimes it's, you know, we've just got ducks recently in the garden and it's just walking around chasing the ducks. Um, it can be anything and uh, and everything is an opportunity to play. So when you look out from your window, there's an ancient woodland that surrounds both the properties, which is uh, part of the Royal Selwood Forest. It's an ancient forest that still exists. Uh, and we're really fortunate that where, where the land is still has this connection with uh, an ancient forest with, um, uh, with old land and with that story of where it's all come from. Uh, and the the land between the two places is also uh, quite a significant point in relation to water and flow, in that there are there are four different uh, rivers that um, that start where we are. We are the source of four rivers. So we have the River Froom, the River Brew, the River Stour, and the River Wye. All start within a two mile uh, radius of where the land is that forty two acres is. Uh, and for me, that's quite significant because there's something in the energy of flow that this is the start of something, that this is a space where things begin and spread out into the world. Um, and there are lots of places like that in the world, but it's nice to feel energetically that this is one of them, that it's not just in the spiritual realm and the unseen, that this is a place where things start and grow from, but it's also in the physical world that water spreads from where we are. Um, why 42 acres? And could you walk us through that ancient forest? Why 42 acres, the name? Yes. So The number, the name. So the land uh, that we bought to be 42 acres, which is this dedicated retreat space, um, it's 42 acres of land. And the space is all about land that you're coming out to experience land, to reconnect with land and to remind yourself of who you are. And who we are is land. Uh, we eat from the land, we breathe from the land. Uh, it's where our ancestors came from. Uh, it's where our ancestors lived. And sometimes we forget that. And spending time just in nature with yourself on land can be one of the most powerful experiences that people have uh, especially coming from a city environment where we don't have space, um, we don't have wilderness. Um, and most of the UK, we don't have that either. It's uh, farmed inch to inch. Uh, everything has to be productive. Uh, everything has to have a purpose which, uh, which provides and uh, exists in service of capitalism, uh, in service of you know, something physical that 
has to make money as opposed to just you know the beauty of land and the biodiversity which you can't put a value on today um so really the name 42 acres is about land it's about uh appreciating the land and how much it gives to us and that we can't separate ourselves from it um a walk through the forest you'd have to come for yourself there's nothing i can say in words that can recreate that perfect we book that in <laughs> i'd like that can i ask you what was your upbringing like so how perhaps you can navigate us from birth of seth all the way up to now with you know a few milestones and anything that comes to mind and that seems relevant um so i've lived pretty much my whole life in london growing up i barely knew what the countryside was um but my mum used to take me to the park uh almost every day growing up the same with lara um and both of our first words was duck <laughs> <laughs> um which was quite funny my older sister's first word was hot uh and she was the one who was uh always looking after us and was aware of our health and safety um but yeah i grew up in london i played a lot of sports uh i was always i always had a ball on me somewhere um and yeah some of my earliest memories were um uh grew up in west hampstead and uh i remember when it was raining that the house was always leaking and we'd be running around putting pots out uh ca catching the water um uh and it was fun and now looking back i think oh wow that would have been quite uh, a lot of it would have been stressful constantly having to get the house patched up uh but at the time it was you know a lot of fun as a kid to be able to put buckets and pots out all over the house to capture the water every time it rained um and yeah i think i grew up um not not wealthy but you know what wasn't uncomfortable and i went to a state school uh and was on all the sports teams and loved my childhood uh and then my dad started making money through his business and i got moved into a private school um you know where i had to put on a uniform and always rebelled against it i'd always take my tie off and always wear the clothes i wanted to wear um and i think i always had to find a way to rebel through the system or rebel against the system um because it just made no sense to me i just didn't understand why you'd have to wear a uniform every day that it's the same as everyone else's clothes and it was always uncomfortable um and yeah uh, now today whenever someone has some party with a suit i just I, i'm not really that interested in going um i'll go to weddings um but you know all these dinners and events i just stop going because i just don't understand why everyone would ask you to put on a suit to look the same as everyone else um and be so restrictive uh i mean and that's kind of a reflection of how society is it's always telling us what we need to wear how we need to dress how we need to talk how we need to hold our knife and fork what kind of food we need to eat how we need to behave uh and there are so many possibilities beyond that that would uh would open our minds up uh and we're really restricted 
uh, and we restrict ourselves by um, by saying yes to that system every time. Any advice, any tips on, on how to get started? How to say no? Say yes to yourself. And so as a child, let's take you for an example. How do you say yes to yourself? Maybe you did. It looks like you did. I think going through childhood for anyone, you, you, you find yourself. It's a journey and you try to fit in because it's so terrifying to not fit in. Um, and you want to have friends. You want to be part of the community. You want to be liked. And it's a practice to learn that you're liked and you're loved, whether you fit in or not, that you always fit in somewhere. Uh, and really, the, you're appreciated the most when you're just yourself. Um, and you find your true friends when you're just yourself, because then you're appreciated for who you are, not who you think you have to be in order to fit in. And it's a journey for everyone. And I, I know I, I had to go on that journey and I did have to fit in sometimes. And for me, it was a lot easier because I was always good at sport um, and I was always nice to people. So I, I wasn't hated by anyone and I was always instantly popular because I could play sport. So that was the mold that you could fit in, mm. in a way. Yeah. So talking about childhood and, and you mentioned pain at the beginning of the interview so did you yourself experience acute pain or in a, you know a period of emphasized strong intense stress i think the what comes up for me as you ask that is uh um having ginger hair was what i used to get bullied for at school and uh i used to hate my hair and there's very little you can do about that um, so I think I dyed my hair, I shaved my head. Um, I just wanted a normal color hair. I wanted black hair or brown hair or blonde hair like all the normal kids. Uh, and now I love my hair. Um, uh, and I don't know why I love my hair now, but I think it's because I love being different and I love being myself and an individual. Uh, and I don't want to fit into how everyone else uh, dresses or, um, yeah, I, I want to be me. Um, I feel the best when I'm myself and I realized that the pain wasn't about the color of my hair in any way or being bullied. It was about me not just loving myself, me feeling like there was something wrong with my hair, uh, just because others said that there's something wrong with my hair and it was believing what everyone else told me and not believing myself and believing the truth, which is that my hair is the color that my hair is. Uh, just as everyone <laughs> in their own life, things are the way they are. And either you choose to be okay with that or you choose to fight it. And in the fighting, that's where the pain comes. So in a way, you love yourself and therefore you accept your hair rather than loving your hair. And I love my hair too now. I love your hair and I happen to be semi-ginger too. <laughs> So you have plenty of ginger on this podcast. <laughs> I want to talk about EQ and IQ. So there used to be a time when, you know, someone someone could be proud 
about high IQ. Not that it was right, but, you know, we would measure that. And we still do, but now that machines are slowly replacing us, or at least replacing a part of our brain or our mind, would you say we are going to witness a change of focus on what actually defines an intelligent human being in this century, maybe in this decade? What comes up is that we are sentient beings uh, and we are not computers. Um, and people want to be loved, people want to be understood. Uh, no matter how high your IQ is, you can analyze all of that and technically understand uh, and know on an academic love level what love and care and all of those things are. Uh, but people want to be felt. Um, we haven't lost that, even though we think sometimes we have, that we are really tuned into ourselves uh, a lot more than, than we know. Um, the, the expression of trusting your gut is because our gut has m more neurons going into it than our brain does. Mm. Um, and, you know, the fastest computer in the world can't tune into something that's just energetic and can't be explained through a feeling. Um, and that's what we are. We are feelings. Um, that's what makes us a sentient being. It's what makes animals sentient beings. Yeah, I would say it's what makes us human beings is to be able to feel, the ability to sense. Well, I think like all things, it's practice. Um, and if we practice being if we practice asking each other how we're doing and really meaning it as opposed to just saying yeah fine <laughs> um i think uh we get better at tuning into our feelings um if we take some time when we eat our food uh to use our eyes and see what's on the plate um to smell to taste we're tuning our senses into the world around us uh, when we really listen to somebody talking and not only listen to their words, but also listen to their body language, we're really tuning in to that being. Um, and it's a constant practice, and the more we practice, the better we get. Uh, whereas if the focus is on uh, the brain, and we see ourselves as a brain on uh, a body that moves our brain around, um, and the only value that we have is our brain, uh, we're seeing each other as computers. So I'm going to assume you think we should, well not should, but ought to to experiment with you know, schools and how we're teaching children from a young age. So I'd be really interested to find out how you would revise or change uh, education from a young age, maybe even within the family at first. Yeah, so I've had some experience working with kids. I, mean, I, I lived in New York for a year and I was working in a kindergarten and an after-school program. Uh, and the school I worked at was called the Blue School and it evolved uh, out of the Blue Man Group, uh, which was an off-Broadway theatre show. Uh, it was all about play and creativity. And in the school, uh, what they taught was that academia, social skills, and play all held an equal value. So they would teach through play. Uh, they would teach through social interaction. Um, 
as well as the academic, you know, teaching people to read, write, uh, count. Um, but it would be very much student led where a child would bring in a bone from a holiday they'd be on, uh, and I've got a dinosaur bone and all the kids would be interested and they'd all play with it. And, uh, and the teacher would, would say, okay, well, let's learn about dinosaurs today. Uh, if that's what you guys are interested in, um, and really just focus on, you know, what's alive in the kids right now, or what, what are they interested in? Where's the attention going? Uh, rather than forcing people into what I call the factory farm of school. Um, this is the system. This is what you need to learn. Uh, read this, write this down. Um, it's completely uninspiring. And, um, and it's no wonder that we spend our whole adulthood having to unschool ourselves from the way we've been taught as children to, to listen and uh, read and write according to a certain set of principles that we may or may not agree with. So for teachers and, and parents out there, would your advice be, or one of them, to follow the intuition of the child and, and be spontaneous rather than... Yeah, I think that children can teach us a lot. Um, we think that just because we're older and we have more experience in the world that we know more, but we know nothing. Uh, and I think the more you know, the less you know. And kids don't pretend to know anything. Uh, they just have questions. And we forget as adults to ask questions of the real basic things in life. And, and if we came with this attitude of, I know nothing, I'm curious, I want to learn everything, we would learn a lot. And that's what kids teach us and we forget. Um, so I feel like there's a real opportunity to be interested in children, to recognize that they have something to contribute to society, um, which isn't just about play, but it's really seeing the world in a different way through an unfiltered lens. Um, and I think it just wakes something up in us when, when we really do listen and tune into what they have to teach us. So we should almost <laughs> have children teach us at school. <laughs> we should go back to school. <laughs> I think it's a sense of being interested in what children have to say uh, and recognizing its value rather than seeing them as wrong and seeing them as they don't know anything and we have to teach them. Uh, it's not a one-way flow. It's two ways. I don't think you're a fan of rules or laws, but if you could help guide society or yourself as part of society, what would you add or subtract? What comes to mind is uh, if I had to put a rule in place, I would say no waste. Um, because what that means is that everything serves a function and what we call waste uh, is actually a resource somewhere else. Um, that could be a wasted comment, uh, a, a wasted thought, a wasted physical thing, um, what we call rubbish. But just recognizing that everything has a purpose in whatever form it's in. Uh, the other one that comes up is probably, <laughs> maybe I would change that to uh, to no complaining, because Good. 
um, actually what comes to mind is uh, one of the biggest problems in the world isn't to do with climate change, isn't to do with, you know, suffering. It's to do with um, the fact that we see we we aren't happy with the way things are, that the way things are isn't okay, and we complain about the way things are um, rather than taking responsibility for how things are and um, trying new things out. And the word responsibility, uh, it's responsibility. It's the ability to respond to a situation. Um, and in complaining, we're just arguing with the way things are without recognizing that we have the ability and the response ability to change things. So it's not necessarily forcing ourselves to be happy with what is, but it's either surrendering or doing what needs to be done to change it. Yeah, I'd say it's being at least okay with how things are. They are the way they are. How do you want to react to that? And in each moment, you don't necessarily have a choice but you can practice things like gratitude, um, practicing being grateful for the way things are. There's always enough, there's always enough conditions within our own lives uh, to be happy. And yet the mind always complains or focuses on what we don't have rather than uh, focusing on being grateful for what we do have. And connecting that to pain, for instance, where you know, you've got a sore arm or you feel sick, your mind says, oh, if only I didn't have this pain in my arm, I'd be so happy. And as soon as that pain goes, or as soon as you feel better, very Something quickly, else. yeah, the mind focuses on the next thing to complain about. It seems to be how we function. Not well, but, <laughs> but you know, what? I think, I think it's important to also recognize that we're not happy with certain things, but it doesn't have to be in the form of complaining. It doesn't have to be in complaint. But I think when you realize, oh, I'm really frustrated by this, or I really don't like this, quite often a big change can come out of that. So gratitude, no complaint, yes, but I would give it a spin and say, okay, what frustrates me? How can I scratch my own itch and make a change? Yeah, and I uh, one of the things, I, I did a permaculture course about 10 years ago, and one of the things that stuck with me was the principle of seeing every problem as an opportunity. It's just a framing, and actually in everything that we call a problem, there's an amazing opportunity to find a creative solution to solve it. So in the garden, for instance, uh, people complain, or not complain, but see a, a problem with slugs. Uh, and how can I get rid of this massive problem of slugs? Whereas if you reframe it and say, okay, what's the opportunity in having slugs in the garden? Ducks, ducks eat slugs, ducks love slugs. Put ducks in the garden and then you get, you turn slugs into duck eggs. <laughs> this is good. So I'm reading at the moment a book called Earth is Hiring. Um, and... It's brilliant. Um, it, it, the, the lady who's written it is a millennial uh, who spent her whole life being successful in the traditional sense. And I say her whole life, I think she's only 30. Um, but, you know, going on tours, speaking in front of big audiences, making a lot of money. 
and felt like it was soulless and wasn't embodying the change she was trying to put into the world. Um, and what she talks about is you have to enjoy your life and life is about the feeling that you have in your body. And for her, it's the most important thing is the way you feel, the vibration on which, which you experience in the moment. And just by focusing on that, what's going to make me feel of the highest vibration in every moment, everything else starts to follow. Um, and you let go of this sense of needing to be successful in the eyes of others. And you just focus on what's going to feel really good right now, because ultimately that's what life's about. It's about feeling good. Um, you know, you can spend your whole life trying to be in service of others, but if you don't look after yourself and you don't feel good in the process of being in service, who are you really in service to? Whose life are you trying to live? Um, you're not living your own life. You're living somebody else's. And how much joy is that going to give you if the process of giving to others but not giving to yourself gives you no joy? In terms of a book I've read multiple times, uh, I think the, the one that comes to mind is A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Um, and yeah, the first time I read that book, a massive shift happened in my life uh, um, where I felt like my path was going to be a different one forever, where I, I let go of, um, I stopped drinking alcohol. Um, not that I was a big drinker, but just in making a small shift like that, the time I spent on other things, the clarity I got within my mind, my social group, uh, where my energy was focused, all completely shifted and uh, things then unfolded from there on a, on a very different path for me. Um, and my health level went up. I had eczema my entire life that went away. Um, all of my work and business and anything I was doing just started to take off to a new level. And I think sometimes what can happen in life is you can make one small change that can have a massive knock-on effect that you don't really realize the consequences of until you look back in time. It's like life is lived forward but understood backwards and making a very small change in your life can have a massive impact. And so sometimes a book can unlock that. Seth, thank you so much for, for your time. That was really great. I think it's a good... Uh a good time to wrap. Is there any way, is there anything you'd like to add? Be yourself. Great. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Ladies and gentlemen, before you take off, I wanted you to know that most, if not all of my guests, meditate. Meditation enables you to switch on and switch off, a little bit like cats do. I prefer dogs, but cats are cool in that way. The thing is, silence and the spoken word can be difficult, and they can limit us in what we can experience. So I would like to recommend meditating with sound. And you can now download my app, Third Ear, 
right away on the App Store. The app is filled with gongs and crystal bowls meditations that I've recorded in the most amazing studio with quality microphones. So once again, the app is called Third Ear, All Letters. You can do it for five or ten minutes a day for a week or two. And then let me know the before and after by email or, or Instagram. I'm looking forward to having you next week for a new episode of Within Conversation. Thanks, guys.